Welcome to On My Own Dime. I'm your host, Jason McCormack. Today I'm speaking with Brooklyn-based music producer, Chris Camilleri. This will be a three-part interview discussing Chris's career, some specific projects, most notably mixing a live performance by John Legend, and of course, lessons learned over his long career in music. We get into his early trajectory in academics and graduating from the Music Technology Master's program at NYU. Chris shares how things progressed differently than he expected and his view on how music technology is shaping the music we listen to. So let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Chris. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? So yeah, I, you know, I'm a producer working in Brooklyn, New York, although I am willing to travel. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the work has, has brought me to, to a few different places. Um, most notably that, that other city that, that we've, we've mentioned a couple of times. Um, yeah, I, you know, I have a, a studio I, I work out of that's in my home, uh, in Brooklyn and I do all kinds of soup to nuts, um, audio stuff, but mainly focus on, uh, kind of pop leaning music and, you know, from a production standpoint. And, uh, I mix all kinds of stuff from hip hop to R and B to, uh, kind of singer songwriter, Americana kind of stuff, just generally things that, uh, just good songs. That's, that's all I'm about. Um, and uh yeah the world can find me online at chris-camillary.com or instagram i'm on there too chris camillary is my username yeah and and most recently i think one of the one of the sort of exciting things that's that's come back into my life is drumming which i kind of let go of for most of the years that i've been really all the years that I've been living in New York, uh, I hadn't had the space and I wasn't in a band. So I wasn't really going to rehearsal spaces except when I was working with bands and, and sort of, you know, producing them in which case I wasn't playing. So I haven't had drums in my life since I basically, since I graduated college and they were such a big part of my identity first and foremost, but also I think my, just my sense of, my self-esteem, I guess, and and also just therapy, I think. Uh, growing up, I recently moved and have a lot more space now, and I have a little drum room set up in the basement that I've kind of hooked up with tie lines down there. So I can record drums, and it's just been like, my world is like totally turned upside down. I, I'm just uh, <laughs> I'm just having so much fun with it. Um, and just it's just been so great to, to, to have that that thing back in my life that I didn't realize was such a big part of, of, of who I am. So that's been fun. And, and weirdly, I've just been kind of throwing stupid videos of myself up on Instagram and, and, um, having people like reach out to me to, to, to play, play on their records and stuff. Uh, so that's been kind of just like a wild unintended consequence, but, uh, it's been, it's been cool. That's very awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking at your credits list and you've been, it's like an endless scrolling of like really cool projects. Oh, thank you. So yeah. It seems like you've been busy. You're still in Brooklyn, right? I'm in Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people I feel like have left New York and gone to greener, sandier, more sunshiny kind of places. Uh, and here I am still slugging away, I guess. Do you mean LA? 
I do. <laughs> I do. Um, you know, I feel like a few a few more sort of interesting locations were chosen by by some of some friends of mine and just people I know through the through the grapevine over the pandemic. You know, some people like kind of freaked out and like went back to wherever their family lives in like some random town in the Midwest or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's been the war of attrition and LA has been just beating New York into submission over the last like 10 years. There's not too many people I feel like in my orbit or at least who were in my orbit back when you and I knew each other, <laughs> you know, that are still here and are not in LA, you know. Uh, Do you so. think that's because of the film industry opportunities in LA? So there's like more work opportunities or just people just want to be there? I think it's uh, maybe a little combination of both. I think if you've spent a little bit of time in New York and maybe it's not for you, it's sort of a natural... Maybe it's just a natural like, oh, well, what's the absolute polar opposite of that? Let me try that, you know? So, like, I think yeah. L.A. has that kind of draw. And I think, yeah, of course, like, for those of us who are in the entertainment business, music, Hollywood, whatever you want to call it, it's it's also the other option for that. And maybe there's more going on there, though I don't want to admit that to myself. A lot of my friends from home, sometimes it feels like L.A. and New York are the only two places on Earth to live because I have a couple friends who they're not in music but they work in different types of media and they've started live in New York raised in New York they go to LA and then they either stay forever or they end up back in New York because they didn't like the vibe out there or what have you there's always different reasons for different people but it does seem to be this revolving door between coasts yeah it's like there's nothing between <laughs> totally <laughs> there's no states in the middle yeah yeah, and I think it, you know, there's a certain type of person or there's a certain mentality that those of us who who do live on the coasts. And of course, you know, I don't I won't get into politics, but it it can go there too that I feel like once you're kind of accustomed to a certain type of just life philosophies, although, you know, the West Coast and the East Coast are very different, but the likelihood that if you want to sort of be in the middle of like the cool stuff the forefront of American culture, most likely you're going to gravitate towards one of those or both of those, you know, places. Are you from, you're from upstate New York or you, you, yeah, yeah. I'm from Kingston, New York. Okay. Gotcha. Oh, it's so that's in the Hudson Valley. Yeah. That's not even that far, right? That's like a couple. No, it's kind of just far enough to not commute daily. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's why I was for a long time, like when, when we knew each other, I would save up my money from whatever job I had full-time upstate and then go sublet a place for like three months and do an internship, run out of money, <laughs> go back home and start again. <laughs> uh, I tried at first to like take the train in and out, but Oof. I mean, it was, that was six hours of commuting a day and I thought that I would just like outlast that, but... I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. When, when commuting becomes like a, f a full-time job, that's, that's a tough break. And, you know, I, you it know, wasn't like now either where you could just like do everything on your phone. Right. I had, I didn't even have a smartphone then. I had like, I had a phone that looked like a Blackberry, but it wasn't, <laughs> it didn't have any of the features or operating system that a Blackberry had. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I guess that was a that was a little while ago, but Blackberries weren't even all that great is in terms of features, so I can imagine that it was relatively primitive. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I always sort of aspired I think even like 10, 15 years ago when I was kind of just starting out, I saw this future where you could just kind of choose wherever you wanted to live and work from there, you know? And like now we're just starting to like maybe like scrape the surface of that happening. Um, But it's still not, you know, there's still an expectation. I feel like in a lot of fields to be sort of in the Mecca, you know, or, or near it in, in the orbit of, of, uh, what, whatever it is, you know, if it's, you know, if it's entertainment, for example, it's New York, LA, Nashville, uh, you have to be, I don't know. There's still this weird expectation. I think, uh, even though like none of us are for the most part meeting in person, like, you know, for the past couple of years, it's almost like part of your reputation. I think, th- yeah, maybe it's like a cred. like where you are to, like, you know, if I were trying to get sessions in New York city, but people knew that I lived in Kingston, my reputation subliminally says like, I didn't make it in New York. So they don't, it's, it just like really dials back the interest if you're not there, I guess. I guess so. Maybe it, it says something about your like survival, uh, success or, or something about yeah. it just gives you it's like a status right? thing it's, it's a like status a brand thing. yeah yeah <laughs> i remember when i was interning at dubway mike was talking to us just in between things we were i think we were having lunch something about his daughter was concerning him she just wanted to like pack up and move to i forget what city and he was like the thing is she just doesn't understand that you you have to have income before you just relocate your life and i remember listening to that and being like yeah, that would have been a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great good advice. Have, I should have should have planned that out. Yeah, <laughs> I felt like he was talking to me. Yeah, yeah. There's another philosophy now too that I come across from a group. It was it was like a music producers group called That Pitch, and it's basically like a pay to pitch service, but it comes with a Facebook group where everyone kind of supports each other and. The person who started it, he was really an advocate for tier two cities. Um, So cities like Raleigh, North Carolina, somewhere that's basically somewhere that's not New York or LA Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, or those major metropolitan hubs, uh, just somewhere that's more affordable to live, more forgiving if you have a lapse in income. Um, And also, I think part of the philosophy is that it's still rich in like artists that are starting out yeah which is great because you have the opportunity as it's more of like not a level playing field but i don't know what the right word is maybe more organic quote unquote to be two people who aren't like a a producer and a musician for example Mm -hmm. who haven't yet quote unquote made it uh and you can just have a normal working relationship (laughs) and do normal stuff and i think the idea is the opportunity is there for you to come up with them yeah so that that's been interesting to hear about and read about and i think there's some i think there's some good in taking that approach for sure but it's hard to especially as a young person in the creative field just forego that 
that uh, pursuit of, yeah. of making it in New York or right, LA. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, for a lot of people, you know, um, well, first of all, I just love that idea and the idea of a tier two city or just somewhere that's a little bit more forgiving to live in uh, is still attractive to me, but I don't know, for some reason I can't quit New York. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Um, And whether it's like just the creature comforts that you've gotten used to, or the sort of like nostalgia that gets baked into your personality about, about like once you've lived here for long enough, it's like, Oh, well, how will I ever let go of whatever insert, you know, restaurant or park or event, you know, uh, that that you just are have become so attached to or accustomed to, um, but yeah, there's like there's there's more to life than that, you know. And if you have a family or, like you said, like you don't want to put yourself under just the ridiculous pressure to to make ends meet every month, you know, and every year, the the just the idea of like chilling out a little bit and not being so extra. Is is really, is really appealing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this always comes up—the concept, the struggle that just never ends of making ends meet, and how that affects creativity. Generally speaking, just the pressure that you're under to like get something done so you can have some income mm-hmm. turns for some people turns their creative work into just a job that they have to keep showing up for. Right. Uh, and other people thrive under that. I think that's more rare, but I've been meeting more people who have found other gigs. Like, that, I mean, that's what I had to do. I had to find something else. And now I only really work on stuff that I really care about because that's, that's all I have time for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all you have time for, but also it's, you're not under pressure to, to do dumb projects or work with shitty clients or whatever because you have to you know now you've got like you can sort of compartmentalize your life and you know make your artistic pursuits about things that you really feel good about you know that you really are passionate about yeah i think the the challenge if that's your approach for me it has been that it really removes you from your circles Mm. if you have like mine were small in the first place if you have a circle or a network of creative people like I joined the Coast Guard, so I'm totally out of the game. You know, I'm not interacting with those people at all anymore. So, but this has been an avenue for that, which which I really enjoy. And uh, but but still, it takes a lot of effort to sure to make to like insert myself back into the lives of people I used to work with or um, people I haven't caught up with in a while. Yeah, but it's been. I mean, it's working for me. It's just a lot slower than I'd like it to be, but I still have my drummer that I used to play with in high school sending me tracks, and I just love the way he plays drums, so yeah, it's good. That's great. Yeah, and it's so it's amazing that we, we can do that in this day and age, you know? I feel like we definitely have not gotten to a place yet where we can at least, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, where we can all like jam together, you know, as if we're all in the same room, but... Uh, there's some app out there or web service that I've seen people trying out, but I don't trust that it's there yet. So I haven't tried it. And besides that, I'm in a different time zone. So it's really hard to jump on at the same time. But even with like, 
you know, bouncing files back and forth that there's still issue. Like that's pretty great. It's mm-hmm. pretty easy now, but there's still issues. Like I've find audio drift where like maybe somebody used a different sample rate in mm-hmm. their session and then it comes back and I have to like warp all the oh, no. stuff. To, oh, yeah. No. It's, it's, it's either that or try or do the troubleshooting process of who did what differently, yeah. which they both take about the same amount of hours. So there's still, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we're pretty lucky that we have the resources we have now to be able to make things work. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to change gears a little mm-hmm. and kind of ask you where you've been the last 15, 12 years. <laughs> I see you've done a lot of cool projects and I most definitely want to hear about the John Legend. You did like a live event that he was part of, right? I did. Yeah. That's the one that I feel like everybody asks about and I have the least to, to, to share about it. But um well, I saw you did, I saw that wasn't the only one you did, but I've yeah. always been interested in recording live events. I remember Jason and Chris used to do the VH1 Unplugged series. Yeah. And, but anyway, they used to use a radar rig and record the whole set. And I was like, oh, that's so cool because it's the closest you can get to like, you know, the wall of sound approach where you just have the musicians do their thing and you catch what they're doing right. in the microphones. Right. So I don't, if you, yeah. you can talk about any one of those that you want. Sure. Um, yeah, so the, the John Legend thing was cool. It was actually, um, it was through Dubway and that was kind of, I guess, towards the end of the work that I had been really doing with Dubway. Um, still, still on, on great terms with those guys and it's a totally new crew there, but you know, Al is still, still kicking around and yeah, so that one was, it was recorded, I think, I'm trying to remember who the crew was. Uh, I'm not going to name names because I might get it wrong and I don't want to do that, but um, recorded super well in an amazing historic church in Harlem. Um, And I think it was in the post-radar era. So I think it was just recorded to Pro Tools. And uh, just, you know, they had like a traveling rig, you know, with just a bunch of, I think they were using Symphony uh, Apogee converters. And... Yeah, I got the call to to mix it, and I was really happy to, to take that call, and uh, it was a really, really quick turnaround. So I had, I'm trying to remember, I had like three or four days to mix like, probably like 16 songs or something like that. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> um, I and, saw some video too, and it, I mean, how many tracks were there? Like 40 something? It was a lot. It was a lot. It was one of the higher counts, I think, that they've had for, for these like live concerts that uh, Dubway was doing a lot of. It was the, the Artist Den series. Uh, yeah, it was a lot. I, I don't want to, maybe not 40, but, but just under. And for every, like, for every instrumentalist, you know, there was like, I know there, I remember there were two bassists. Like one was on a synth bass or something, and the other was like a, just a typical, you know, like, you know, P bass or jazz bass or whatever. And two drummers, you know, one was just a typical drummer and the other one was like more of a percussionist. So there was just, there was a lot, there was a lot of inputs. But the cool thing about working on an album really of any kind, but particularly one where uh, it was all recorded like at one time in the same space is once you get 
a basic sound for, you know, what I normally would do in that case. And what I did in this case was I went to one of the songs that I knew well, like the best, you know, of from from John Legend's catalog and like find that song that like kind of speaks to you. And hopefully it's one that where there's a lot going on too, you know, because there there were definitely some songs where it was just him and the piano, right? But what my approach was was sort of to to find a song where there was a lot going on and that I could get into really quickly and just establish just a basic sound, you know. And then from there, I kind of had the drum sounds dialed, you know. Not not much has to change from one song to the next. So then it's kind of like the bells and whistles and just making sure that the vocal is is sitting right in every song kind of like you know just go, going through them all um and of course the challenge with a live album album um is finding that right balance between blending the crowd and making it feel alive and live and attended and and energetic but not so much that it's taking away from the musical performance too you know so that was a fun time. I never met John Legend, uh, but I sat for a day with his music director, uh, who was a super cool, super cool guy. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, John approved the mixes after some pretty minimal uh, revisions and we were good to go. And it was kind of a very quick uh, engagement. So, uh, yeah, it was a fun time. I mean, I have to imagine that all along the chain of production was like top tier professionals. So I'm sure the tracks you got were super clean. Was it an ideal work situation? Like when you opened up your sessions and started working, was everything kind of smooth? Yeah, super smooth. And it's something that I don't think I really appreciated until the more recent years of my my career where I'm no longer really associated with any specific studio you know i kind of i have my own studio that's that's in my place and so i'm re- i'm receiving files from all over the place all the time sometimes they're coming from professional studios you know and sometimes you know in this day and age they're coming from people's basements or garages or whatever you know and uh it's like lawless it's totally <laughs> it's yeah it's just the open wild wild west out there but i think one thing that that i could say that just remains true to me this day is like there was such a strong foundation set and and a precedent set at Dubway for at the very very baseline not fucking it up right like capturing (laughs) well making sure that you're listening to what you're capturing making sure you're not like hitting red just the basic things just to make sure that wherever it's going after this somebody's gonna be happy when they open up that session you know right not getting the like not having your 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 sample rate set to one thing and the clock set to something else right like just really like bonehead stuff where hey let's just get the basics right there's always challenges with any recording no matter how well it's been recorded there's always going to be something that you kind of have to to work on or or some challenge that exists and i think with like for example like the live thing it's that balance like all right we've got all this crowd sound and that's going to bleed and cause potentially like, you know, masking, but also like maybe phase issues with the close mics that we have on the instruments because they're capturing, you know, and that's like the, the, so, you know, no, no project comes without its challenges, but 
yeah, that one was about as as easy breezy as as one could hope. If they were all like that, nobody would have anything to complain about. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I remember in um, so one of the studios I assisted at a long time ago was upstate, and somebody was mailing us DVDs with like data of their recordings, and yeah. He recorded his drums in a bedroom, you know, eight foot ceilings, but he used, and he used eight tracks, but he chose to use a top and bottom snare mic and one overhead. And his request was, I would like a John Bonham type of sound. And we had, we had like a couple, you know, I had, I had something to say about that as the, <laughs> cause we, it was a radar studio. Um, and just since we mentioned it a couple times, not everybody listening is an audio person. Radar is a, a multi-track recording platform that emulates the old school tape systems, but it's digital. And it was always renowned for its converters and how clean they are. So it's a little outdated now because there's so much more technology yeah. that works better with <laughs> editing. But because it was a radar studio, the owner wanted a Pro Tools guy, and that's that was my opportunity to get in there. Ah, but I had to fly okay. everything in and out using DVDs every time there was an edit to make, which for this project <laughs> yeah. of 26 tracks of drum recorded, drums recorded in a bedroom, there was a lot of editing. <laughs> and then Sound Replacer was not new, but still relatively like, there were bugs still being worked out yeah. of that plugin. And so, you know, I had to replace every single drum hit from all the direct oh mics. I had to, I had to like figure out how to way, a way to fake the other overhead. So I spent like months just doing drums. Yeah. But I, I learned it really well, but I was, you know, is sure. the juice worth the squeeze? I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that was yeah, like, that he was in like LA a... and he was mailing us these DVDs. Then I was taking his DVDs, flying them back and forth between the mix rig and the editing station repeatedly. Cause he, you know, he wants to listen on the monitors, but the editing rig was very minimal. It didn't have enough to get multiple outputs to his mixing station. Um, yeah. And he liked listening to everything through the AMAC console, obviously. So wow. it was a ton of work yeah. and it was kind of experimental from the owner's standpoint because he had never trusted someone to, or never trusted Pro Tools essentially. But uh, yeah, I think about that in the context of what we have available today. And it's, I can't believe that we were, do we were doing it that way. <laughs> it's night and day. Yeah. I, nobody has patience for anything close to that these days. I mean, that's just a workflow nightmare, it sounds like to me, but you know, something like that wasn't all that uncommon. You know, it is, it's similar. It's akin to like, you know, when that, that, those times when you were managing kind of the, uh, and I think when you were, when you were at Dubway, we were still doing some tape sessions, mm -hmm. right? Where like we were recording to tape and then dumping into Pro Tools and stuff. So it's, it's, yeah, it's not too dissimilar from that, but man, yeah, I imagine working on those drums was no fun at all <laughs> well part the parts that were fun yeah there were few parts that were fun very few because what ended up happening is like i i had to contact digit design and like report some bugs that i was finding 
because the owner was so meticulous and like he wanted something very specific and the like I was using the plugin how it's how the manual says and it wasn't delivering what it should have been it was like blending all the threshold hmm. samples together instead of oh. triggering each one each one individually yeah. yeah so yeah i mean you know to to his credit he paid me for all the hours i sat on hold with digidesign <laughs> but that's the way it not a be. lot of job not <laughs> a lot of satisfaction from for me it's like i I wanted to hear like the clean drums, the final product, and it just took so long to get there, but it was a good exercise yeah. in like technical chops and patience. So not, totally. not at yeah. all a waste of time, just a very painstaking process. And then to get like, sure. to take those like horrible tracks and make them something presentable felt rewarding at the end of the project, but it dragged on for two years. Because the oh drums were just the foundation, and he wanted everything else overdubbed. So we were bringing in all right. these different musicians from the city, upstate, to like do yeah. little things wow. here and there to get the whole project completed. But yeah, again, when I think about that in the context of modern technology that we have right now, it's like, oh, people would not be driving three hours to yeah. come record guitar tracks. They would just send them from file sharing. Totally. Yeah, we have like so much better technology, but so much better knowledge out there too. Like, you know, just any given musician in this day and age, most likely, you know, either on their own accord or because they've been expected to, like has learned at least how to record basic stuff at home, you know, to, to send to, to collaborators, you know, and, and things like that. And I think, you know, the pandemic just kind of furthered that because if you want to work, you know, you got to, you got to learn to to work in in the in a changing world um and of course a dramatically changed one in the last couple of years so yeah do you think that i'll set the i'll set this question up a little bit in 2008 when i went to school for audio i had this idea that i would learn the equipment and the the technology and like learn to be a great technician and know know like the technical aspects as best as I could and I focused on that with the idea that once you go out into the world you find a studio and you work for them like forever and they that's where you get your work they give you clients and projects and they do it based on who knows everything the best but that's very different in real life. That's the, like, that's the theory. That's the yeah. ideal world that you're, or that I was taught in school. Yeah. Like that's what you're going out into. Totally. And, uh, yeah. Then with there's multiple, multiple factors like moving together. Right. And not necessarily in the same direction, but technology changing musicians adapting was like in 2008 was mm. I would argue it was a different type of DIY environment where it was very much like, oh, are you an independent band? Subscribe to this newsletter and we'll teach you how to record at home, where now it's much more geared towards like um, the DIY aspect is much more promotion-based and marketing-based. Um, and it's presumed that most musicians know how to use the technology. But right. 
I wonder sometimes, or I try, I struggle sometimes to see the big picture. And I've even like my bachelor's, I, I did communications and media. And I, my thesis paper was like the effect of music technology changing on, on wow. the environment of like consuming music and creating music. And I still struggle <laughs> to kind of see <laughs> the whole picture of how did musicians adapting technology changing and the industry changing make things go down a route where, and you might not agree with me, not everyone does, but I think the skill set was kind of devalued or watered down in a lot of ways, in a lot of dimensions where it's like, oh, well, I could do that myself. So which, yeah. with the same yeah. type of attitude yeah. of like, well, I could hire a landscaper, but I could just cut my right. grass myself. But So right, right. I guess I'm asking, what are your thoughts on that? Oh man, uh, I have a lot of thoughts. That's like you know, there's there's a lot there. Because uh, do so you find me... like do you have times where you have an opportunity to do a project and you feel like it it they passed because of the thought like I'll just do it myself. Definitely, yeah, that happens. Sometimes that happens in the middle of a project too. You know, like that. And that's of course heartbreaking, <laughs> but. Yeah, look, I mean, for better or worse, musicians and just creative people, I would just say, like, even broader than musicians, but like creative people are much more enabled now than they ever were, right? And everybody thinks that they're fill in the blank, a guitarist, a producer, what a mixer, you know, whatever, whatever it is, like the technology has has just become so accessible, both from a learning aspect because we have things like YouTube and from a, a price point, you know, like you can now get a little box of con like two converters or whatever in like a, you know, I'm not, I'm just going to, I'm going to name drop like a Focusrite Scarlet, you know, interface or something like that, which has converters that were, that are way better than anything you and I were working on when we were at Dubway together. Right. Uh, so the, the tech is there and it's so much easier to just get into it. And so I think it's good because there, there's just a wellspring of creativity out there that's just been unleashed. But I think absolutely, does it, does it water down the art and science of engineering, you know, things well and properly and with intention, with, uh, I don't know, respect? I don't want to sound like an old fart because I'm sure everybody's been saying this for generations. Just like, just like our, our grandparents said, well, well I, when I was a kid, like they made chocolate much better than they do now, you know? So I think there's a little bit of that effect, no matter, no matter who you are, no matter what generation you're born into. But I think it's on a super expedited track. Like if you, if you're talking about making content of any kind, and I, I mean, music, video whatever you call it um just art you know in general like the technology has just made it so much easier and more accessible that's it for this episode come on back next week as we continue the conversation with chris about the nature of freelance work navigating instability and the magic of recording studios thanks for joining me and have a great week out there on planet earth